Good morning. I'm Michael Walters. I'm an assistant pastor, volunteer assistant pastor at Church Creek Presbyterian. It's good to be with you all uh, this morning uh, to look at God's Word together. I've been in prayer for Two Rivers, uh, that the Lord would continue to bless the ministry of Two Rivers and particularly for uh, your search, uh, your search committee as they look for a pastor and as the congregation uh, looks for who the Lord has uh, for you as a church. Uh, I want to just give a little bit of uh, context of what we just read before I pray uh, for us. Obviously, this passage is written by Isaiah. Uh, This book is written by Isaiah. Isaiah was uh, a prophet of God who ministered to the southern kingdom. Uh, In his time, the people of God were divided into two nations. You've got the northern kingdom, uh, the northern tribes of Israel, and the southern uh, kingdoms of Judah, or uh, tribes of Judah and Benjamin in in the kingdom of Judah. And uh, he is, Isaiah is primarily a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. And it's the southern kingdom of Judah who's had God-fearing kings. Uh, some that weren't so God-fearing, but at least they had some that were God-fearing and, and loved the Lord. And the northern kingdom uh, as a whole had just one uh, unbelieving king after another through, uh, through their course of, of time. So Isaiah is a prophet speaking to that southern kingdom. During his ministry, the northern kingdom is conquered. Uh, and is taken off into exile. And uh, Isaiah is speaking to his contemporaries, uh, particularly uh, in this passage that we're looking at. But he's also speaking from Isaiah 40 on, but through the whole passage, through the whole uh, book of Isaiah, he's speaking down the road to the people of Judah that would be taken into exile. And as they come up out of exile and be brought back into the promised land. Now, to just kind of get a picture of that time frame, uh, what that would have been like, uh, Isaiah and his time distance from the, the time that people left out of, uh, out of exile would have been like somebody just after the Revolutionary War writing to us. So this is a, a big time span of difference between Isaiah when he writes and the final audience that he really has uh, in mind. And then when you think about the people that are in exile, uh, they're in exile for about 70 years. Um, 70 years, what is that? We think back about 70 years, um, my, my grandfathers fought in World War II. There's not many people uh, who fought in World War II who are still among us. We still know and, and have uh, vivid memories of their stories uh, and of these people that were, uh, that were with us who fought in those wars. But for the most part, that generation has died out. Uh, and that's kind of a picture of what those exiles would have experienced. Uh, as they were coming up out of exile back into the promised land, none of them had seen the promised land. Uh, they all uh, would have been uh, new to that. That just kind of gives us a, a picture of uh, Isaiah, the, the big idea of the, of the book here. He's, he's talking about this deliverance that they would have. And if you have a Bible in front of you, just look back to Isaiah 7, verse 1. Uh, if not, just listen to this. In the days of Ahaz, now that's the, that's the king of the southern kingdom uh, of Judah. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, uh, the king of Syria and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. And so here's the people of God in the southern kingdom, and they're, they're besieged by an army, and they're terrified. And in response to this, Isaiah gives this prophecy of deliverance, and he says a virgin will conceive. That's, that's in chapter 7. You're all familiar uh, with that if you're familiar with Isaiah. Uh, a virgin will conceive. So there's that that prophecy that's really fulfilled in Christ, as you know. Uh, and then in Isaiah uh, 8, uh, there's this prophecy of the coming Assyrian invasion. 
who is Assyria invading? Well, it's the northern kingdom of Israel, the very people that are besieging the southern kingdom of Judah. And so God's basically telling his people, you don't need to worry about this threat because there's going to be another army that's going to come and take these people away. Uh, you don't need to worry uh, about them. And so he's, he's giving that, uh, that note of, of confidence uh, to them. And, uh, and we'll, we'll look at Isaiah 9, uh, verse 1 again. And uh, you'll note that here in this, uh, in this passage, uh, it's talking about the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Who were Zebulun and Naphtali? That's uh, one of those names in the Bible that can kind of just go off in the, in the back burner and, and you can forget about it. It's, it's difficult to remember all the, all the, the names in the Bible. But those, these are uh, two of the sons of Jacob who was renamed Israel. So these are two of the tribes of Israel. So he's, when he's talking about the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, it's not talking about two people's land. It's talking about their, the tribal land. That tribal land is located in the northern part of, of the promised land above the Sea of Galilee. So this is in the north... The northern kingdom that's about to be taken over by the Assyrians. Uh, they're also part of this invading army. So the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, beyond the, uh, the Jordan, uh, Galilee of the nations. You can think of Gal- uh, the Sea of Galilee. Um, out of the Sea of Galilee flows the Jordan River. It goes south all the way down to the, the Dead Sea. And so this is, this is a tribal land that's even above the Jordan River. Uh, and so it's, it, it's just a description of, of where that is. So that kind of puts in, in perspective uh, what we're looking at here. Uh, let's pray and ask for the Lord's guidance as we study his word. Lord, we would see Jesus. We would see you and meet with you. That is why we are here today. That is our, our heart's desire, and if it's not, Lord, we, we want it to be. Uh, would you work in us and would you speak to us? Uh, for we are your people. We are called by your name, and, and we uh, so desperately need your, your life. We are but branches, and if we are cut off from the vine, we have no life. Uh, but in you, we have life. And so, Lord, we come for that life-giving sap uh, of your word, uh, the bread of life. No, so nourish us, Lord, and so speak to us, for we are your people called by your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, Isaiah 9, 2, just to have this fresh in our minds, uh, or 1 and 2. Uh, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish, in former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. If you'll remember this... Uh, this verse that we, uh, that we read here, verse uh, about Midian. Um, yeah, verse 4. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Uh, what's being referred to there? Why does Isaiah bring up this, uh, this situation of a battle with, with Midian? Well, the Midianites, back in the days of the judges, were one of those uh, people that had controlled God's promised land and God's people who were living there. And God raised up a judge to defeat the Midianites, a judge by the name of Gideon. And when you think of that name, well, then the whole story just kind of pops to mind, doesn't it? You, you, you can remember the things that the Lord did uh, through Gideon, and, uh, and you remember this battle that they had with, uh, with the Midianites. Why does Isaiah bring that up here? Why is he trying to, uh, to have us bring to mind uh, 
the situation with the Midianites and, and Gideon? Well, it, it, uh, it's showing us uh, kind of a picture of the situation of people who live in darkness. Uh, when uh, God called Midian to be a, Gideon to be a judge, to, to come overcome the, the Midianites, uh, he called, Gideon called all of Israel, all of God's people together to come to him to, to fight the Midianites. And so a bunch of people came, and there were about 32,000 of them that came uh, to Gideon. And the Midianites, how many were they? Well, it says in the Bible that they were, they were as numerous as the sea upon the, the shore. Hundreds of thousands is, is the, the idea there. Uh, and so um, it's not looking too good for the Israelites. 32,000 against multiple hundreds of thousands, an army as vast as the sea upon the, the, sea, uh, the sand upon the seashore. Um, and yet God says this to Gideon. He says, uh, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. And so God knows this about the Israelites. He knows this about us, too, that we all have this tendency to kind of congratulate ourselves when, uh, when something good happens, that we can kind of think that it was our efforts that delivered us. And, uh, and God's saying, you, you're going to get the wrong picture if I leave this situation as it is. Uh, you're going to take credit. And so we have to diminish uh, your numbers. Uh, uh, before the numbers are diminished, Gideon lays out a fleece. You know, the, the story looking for God's guidance. Uh, are you really going to deliver this uh, army into our hands? Yes, I'll deliver it into your hands, he says, in multiple ways. But you're still too many. So he, he reduces the number, and, and uh, Gideon just offers. Anybody who's afraid and wants to go home, you can go home. 22,000 leave. 22,000 leave, leaving Gideon only with 10,000 against this vast army as, as vast as the sand upon the seashore. Uh, if you're Gideon, you've got to be thinking, or this is going the wrong way. <laughs> Things are not looking good here. And, uh, and yet God says the very same phrase to, to Gideon again. The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hands have saved me. And so Gideon devises this test. They, they drink some water with some kind of obscure, I don't, I don't know exactly what's going on there, but there's this test and it reduces the number of people. Uh, people who drink a certain way, well, they're dismissed, and people who drink another way, well, they stay. And it leaves Gideon with only 300 people. And then the Lord says, well, this is, this is how I will deliver the Midianites into your hands. And, uh, and they go, and they, uh, at night, uh, you know the story, they take the, the torches with um, jars over them, they break the jars, and they cry out uh, as they surround the Midianites, uh, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And the Midianites themselves slay one another. And the Lord hands the Midianites over uh, to the, the people of Israel. The point of that is to say that the people of Israel were not able to deliver themselves. The only remedy for those oppressed by darkness, as, as we find in this passage, or, or spiritual darkness, as we find in our day, the only remedy for those oppressed by darkness is the intervention of Almighty God, supernaturally intervening into their circumstances. Uh, it's the intervention of Almighty God and His redeeming light. Uh, I was thinking about um, something I was looking at online about a year ago. Uh, I was following uh, and still follow NOAA on Twitter. NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and they have some different uh, deep water dives that you can see. And, uh, and you can just kind of tune in online and see this uh, deep water dive vessel and everything that it, that it shows. And it's amazing when, you, when the, the thing goes down uh, a mile or more into water and, and all the beautiful colors of the coral or the fish that are down there. And uh, it's, a, it's amazing the, the things that you can see, these creatures. 
that lives so far under the ocean. But they have multiple cameras you can look at, and one camera is above the main dive camera that's not really looking at fish. It's just looking down at the, uh, at the, the main camera. And the thing that struck me looking at that upper camera, looking down at this other camera, is there's just blackness everywhere, and there's just this little light uh, from this main camera. And, and the, the picture of that Noah dive is that there's just utter darkness, and then this light comes down into that, into that darkness. The darkness doesn't have any ability. Uh, there is nothing in the darkness that can bring light to its circumstances. It must be a light that comes in and penetrates that darkness. And perhaps that's a helpful illustration that can help you think of what God does for us in our, in our darkness. Uh, and so th- let's think about the darkness that's in this, this text. Those who dwelt in, uh, who walked in darkness have seen a, seen a great light. Uh, this is an oppressive darkness. Who is it that's in this, this darkness? Uh, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. You know, I've, I've always thought about this when you, when you come to the, the phrase at the end of verse 1, uh, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. I've always kind of thought of this in, in New Testament terms, that uh, this is really a reference to, to bringing in of the, the, the nations, the, uh, the people who were not part of the people of God. But when Isaiah was writing, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali were those... Uh, were those pagans who didn't have any interest in or any history of the people of God? No, they were they were part of the people of God. Their history, their their um, uh, heritage as a people was the same as uh, as all the people of God. And uh, one of the things that that is showing to me uh, when we think about this this darkness and the the darkness being penetrated by the light, this is not just a situation of people who've never known God. Uh, there's a danger for those of us who've grown up all our lives and had the things of God in our lives all, all along. Uh, just because you have the means of grace in your life, just because you have the Word of God in your, your life, uh, all around you in your ears, doesn't mean it's penetrated into your heart. Uh, and so there's a, there's a warning to the people of God as Isaiah speaks to unbelieving people all around him. Uh, you have this as your heritage, but you need to own it in your heart and not just as your, as your heritage. So who is in darkness uh, it's, it's even these people of God. It's anyone who rejects uh, the revelation of God. What is the darkness? What is this imagery? You've got the physical um, illustration that's illustrating the spiritual reality of spiritual darkness. So what is the physical thing? How does that help us? Let's think about the physical thing of, of darkness. Uh, in... Uh, And just in, in general, when you think about darkness, uh, going, getting up at, in, in the night, uh, you can stumble your way to the, the, the bathroom or wherever you're going, and you've got some light that helps you see some of the things around you. It's not utter, total darkness. But darkness is the, the absence of light. I remember growing up uh, here in the low country, going out to Sullivan's Island, my family playing tennis on the tennis courts there in Sullivan's Island, and just behind those tennis courts are some World War II-era bunkers. You know, those are scattered out throughout all of Sullivan's. Um, I don't know if you can still get in those now, but as a, as a teenager, we could get into those, or even before teens, and, and it was amazing going into one of these bunkers. You just turn the corner, and you're, one moment you're in blinding light of, of day that's so bright, and the next minute you're in utter pitch darkness, and you can't see the hand in front of your face. In uh, the, the plagues against Egypt, there's a darkness plague, and it says it's a darkness that can be felt. And that's kind of how I felt when I was Growing up in those tunnels, turn the corner into the tunnel there in this uh, bunker. It's, it's a darkness that can be felt. There's, there's just a total absence of light. Uh, you can't see 
a thing around you. And that's, that's a picture, uh, that physical reality is a picture of the spiritual reality of spiritual darkness. Uh, your eyes uh, are helpful to you. They can show you the things around you, but you have to have light to be able to see those things. If there's no light, your eyes can't send any message to your brain. You can't see anything in your circumstances. And that's a picture for those who are in spiritual darkness. There's, there's an inability to perceive your circumstances spiritually. There's an inability to know yourself spiritually, to know your own sins, your own shortcomings. There's an inability to know your God. There's an inability to, uh, uh, to have any kind of spiritual light or uh, perception. And so blindness is, uh, is darkness. It's not just a, um, while it's a pitiful uh, description, an image that we have for us, it's not just something where we would pity those in darkness or pity ourselves in darkness as though we are completely victims. Because the thing throughout Scripture, when we see spiritual blindness, and in this passage, we see that it's a willful blindness. Uh, we don't see because we don't want to see, is the picture of, of uh, a spiritual blindness. Uh, verse uh, 19 and 21 of, um, of chapter 8, if you'll look back at uh, 19 or just recall, uh, in, in verse 19, God's people uh, reject him. They reject God and they go after uh, paganism. Uh, in verse 19, and when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chup, chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they, not in, uh, should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? And so instead of uh, seeking to know God, seeking to know his will uh, through the way he's revealed himself, they just go into utter rank paganism. That's the very thing that God told his people before they went into the promised land that they shouldn't do. And if they did that, he would spit them out of the promised land. And yet that's the very thing that they're doing. They've rejected God. They've gone after uh, paganism. Uh, verse 20, they've rejected the word of God. To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They have no light. They might have the Bible in front of them, but the, the light of it hasn't really dawned upon them. They haven't really understood anything because they, they reject God's word. Uh, and so they, here's a, a situation of people who are willfully blind. They've rejected uh, the word of God. And then also, verse 21, there's this contempt uh, for God. Verse 21, uh, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will, in, uh, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upwards. upwards. So they have contempt uh, for God. This is the circumstances of the, the northern kingdom of Israel and even some of uh, Isaiah's own countrymen in the southern kingdom. And, uh, and there's this, this spiritual blindness that they have. They've rejected God, but it's a willful blindness. Notice how this, we have a refrain in chapter 12. We didn't read all of chapter 12, but as you go on in chapter 12, past verse 7, excuse me, chapter 9, verse 12, you see a refrain that comes up um, in uh, verse 12 and 13 and in, and in several other places in, in chapter 9. Uh, look at verse 12. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger is not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So God's told them before they went into the promised land, if you reject me and you just be, live like the pagans who are here before you, I'm going to end up turning you out of the promised land. I'm going to send you off into exile. And, uh, and, and I'm going to send different covenant curses against you, uh, even before that, to give you warning, fair warning. And that's the very thing that's, that's happening uh, to the people in the northern tribes. They've rejected God, and yet they see all these covenant curses coming upon them. That's not just something to show God's anger against his people. 
that's something, and, and it's displeasure, that's also God's grace. He's keeping his covenant. He's giving them warning. He's trying to get their attention with all these painful things that are being brought into their lives. He's getting their attention, and yet, what does it do? It doesn't get their attention. For all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still stretched out. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts, it says in verse 13. And so there is this willful blindness. They're rejecting God's repeated uh, attempts to get their attention. It makes me think of um, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis uh, describes pain as God's megaphone to a deaf and unhearing world. He sends pain to this, to this world so that we would see our brokenness and that we would call upon the Lord and depend upon him. And yet how many times do we, do we just use pain for the opposite uh, end, that it would drive us further away from the Lord? And so uh, this is a willful blindness where we reject where people reject God's uh, um, attempts to get their attention and, and his um, displays of grace. But not, it's not just uh, C.S. Lewis that makes me think of it. also makes me think of Romans 1. In Romans 1, you've got a description of people who have turned away from God. They know the truth, and yet they suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And there's a phrase that's a refrain that's also repeated there. In, uh, in Romans 1, God says again and again, three times in Romans 1, he gave them up. He gave them up to themselves. He gave them up to their own desires. He gave them up to lawlessness, this, that, or the other. He's giving them over uh, to themselves. And you can kind of see a picture with this willful blindness. They, they want to reject God, and God gives them the most severe judgment that we can experience in this life. He says, okay, you can have your way. It's the most terrible thing we can experience uh, in this life for God just to simply give us over to ourselves. And th- so this, this blindness is a, a willful blindness that you see here in chapter 9 of this refra- refrain of, of these people uh, not uh, turning back to God. Uh, this is the same idea, this willful blindness is the same idea that's brought up in, in John chapter 3. I think the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Uh, very clear uh, declaration of the gospel and of the, the hopeful truths of the gospel uh, that, that give us such joy and hope, that there's this forgiveness of sins in, uh, in Christ. But right in the context of that, just going on after verse 16, we get down to verse 19 through 20, we find this. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Uh, and, you know, when you read through, through John, you see, well, there's, there's those people who reject the gospel. Uh, they, they turn away from God. But we've, it, it's easy to forget as, as Christians, this is our natural response for, for any of us. This is who we are as human beings. There's a natural animosity that everybody has when we're born, a natural animosity towards God, where we, we see the light and we want to run from it. Why? Light, the light of God is, is life. Why would somebody run the other way? Why, why is it said here in John that people run the other way? For fear that their deeds will be exposed. We don't want to be exposed, and so we run the other way. And so this is a, a blindness. It's a spiritual blindness. It's a willful blindness, and it's separation from God, uh, who is light and life. Uh, just thinking about that illustration of, of darkness. Darkness is the absence of light. And so spiritual darkness is the absence of God, who is light and life. Uh, in uh, in, in this world and in our, in our experience in this world, we don't ever have the total, utter, complete separation from God who's light and life. There's always the opportunity to repent. 
there's always God's grace being held out. God shines his grace not just on his own uh, children, but upon those who are his enemies. And so there's, there's always uh, some kind of connection you can have with the God who is life and light. It's really only in hell that there is a total, utter, and absolute separation from God who is light and life. That's what makes hell, hell. And, and the light and life that is God is what makes heaven, heaven. God is there. Uh, and so there is this, in, in this picture of, of spiritual darkness, there's a separation from God who is life and light, and it's only partial darkness in this life. Uh, you still have some way to, to know God. And then that, ex- that separation from God who is life and light is also expression of his displeasure, and it's a foretaste of, of judgment. Uh, verse 12, 17, and 21, again, of, of chapter 9 is that, that refrain that goes uh, throughout chapter 9. Uh, verse 12, for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still stretched out. Verse 17 at the end, uh, for everyone is godless and evildoer. Every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger is not turned away, and his hand is still stretched out. And verse 21 at the end, for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still stretched out. It's a refrain repeated word for word again throughout Isaiah. Why is Isaiah going over that same ground again and again? He wants us to understand the hard-heartedness of his people, that they've, they've had repeated uh, illustrations uh, of God getting their attention, and yet they're still stiff-necked. They're still rejecting God. And, and even in all of this, it's an expression of God's displeasure. He's giving them over to themselves. He's giving them over to this foretaste of his, of his judgment. This is real. This is not, you know, just something that's, that's um, interesting categories to think in. This is a real reality that describes the spiritual reality that people live in, real people that we know. Um, many of us can remember times in our lives where we walked in thick darkness. And it's, it's a pitiful picture. It's a sad picture. It's a terrifying picture. And it's a very real reality that people have. Day in and day out, uh, they walk in this, in this, uh, in this darkness. So that's, that's the darkness. But notice that the, the text says, chapter 9, verse 2, these are people who walked in darkness. What does it mean to walk in darkness? Well, that means that as you, where, everywhere you go, you're going in, in darkness. What happens when you walk in, in darkness? You get up in the night and you, you can't see everything in the room. Well, you might, you might stub your toe. It hurts when you can't see the things that are around you, when you can't perceive your circumstances, you're going to hurt yourself. When you think your circumstances are one thing and they're an entirely different thing, you're going to run up against the truth, and it's going to hurt. Uh, and that's the, that's the reality of people who walk in darkness. There's a brokenness to their experience. There's an ignorance to their experience. They can't see the things that really are there. And there's a sadness to that ignorance because a lot of times people think, I know what's around me. I know what's true. Uh, and they're, they're just dead wrong. They just simply don't know their spiritual reality that they live in, uh, the, the spiritual reality of this, this world. There's an ignorance, a brokenness, and, and there's an irony. Um, in, the, in the New Testament, Paul will often talks about living by faith, and he contrasts that with living another way. We, we live by faith. We don't live by sight. Um, there's an irony of living by sight. Uh, look at how it's, how it's described for us in, uh, in chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 22. <clears throat> and they will look on the earth, but behold the stress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. These are God's people who have been promised His deliverance if they would only trust in Him. 
And they say, that's, that's a fairy tale. We can't trust in some religious promise when there is powerful nations around us. We're talking about real physical barriers that we can't overcome. These are armies that we can't possibly overcome. We should not trust these promises. We just simply need to trust in other idols or other nations. These are the things that will deliver us. And so instead of looking to God's promises, they're looking to the things that they can see. They're looking to Egypt to deliver them. Uh, and they're looking to the earth. Is, is, that's, the, that's the idea there. They're, they're not living by faith. They're living by sight. And the irony of living by sight is you don't see. You think you see, but you don't see. And that's what's, uh, what's going on here for people who walk in darkness. There's this irony that they, they think they're living by sight, that they see, but in fact they're, they're blind. Uh, and he will be a sanctuary, the Bible says, for both houses of Israel. He will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare, uh, chapter 8, verse, uh, verse 14. Uh, and so we see people stumbling over Jesus, who is this deliverance. Some people receive him and cling to him, and others, they think they can see, but they just stumble right over him. Uh, here is this deliverance offered for them. They, when you walk in darkness, you, you hurt yourself. Paul describes it this way in Ephesians 4, spiritual darkness. Ephesians four seventeen through 19, I think you have this verse in your outlines. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. You know what it's like to have futile thinking? Um, sometimes I can be anxious. I don't know if anybody can relate to that. Sometimes I can, I can wrestle with anxious thoughts, and I'll go over the same uh, ground again and again. And you realize after the seventh time of going over the same ground, I'm not getting anywhere. My thinking is futile. And that's one picture of the many ways in which our thinking can be futile, and that's really a description of those who, who walk in darkness is there's a futility to their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Uh, this is a willful blindness. They have rejected God and his truth. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. They walk in darkness and they hurt themselves. Uh, that leads to more brokenness and more blindness. But that's not the only image that we have in this verse. Chapter 9, verse 2, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. These are ones who dwell in darkness. It's not just they live in darkness for an hour or two or for a day, but this is their home. This is their dwelling. This is their life. Day in day out, week in, week out, year in, year out, decade after decade for their whole life. This is their dwelling place. This is where they live. It's unmitigated darkness. It's an unbroken darkness. And so God tells Isaiah when he's sending him on his ministry to the people of Israel and he tells him to go to the people of Israel, what does he tell him? Go tell these people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. It's a sad situation. If we are left to ourselves, that will be the situation of every last one of us. We will, we will hear God's word, but we will reject it. We will see all around us the illustrations of God's almighty power, his eternal power, and his divine nature, but we will reject it. We will suppress that truth unless God has mercy on us and by his almighty intervention comes into our lives and turns on the lights. These are people who dwell in, in darkness. And they live also in the shadow of death, as it's put, I think, in the NIV, uh, who dwell in the land of uh, deep darkness. As the, the shadow of death is in another 
uh, translation of that same verse. Uh, that's the same phrase that's used in Psalm 23. Uh, you remember the shadow of death in Psalm 23? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Uh, what's the idea of the shadow of death? Well, it's that, it's that place where death is casting its shadow. Um, and so if you think of the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, they're on the northern part of Israel, and they're basically the front lines. If a foreign army were to come and invade Assyria, namely, they would come and the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, would be the first uh, to, to be overcome by the enemy. And so they're, they're in this land where death casts its shadow. Uh, they can see that here's this approaching army we're about to be overcome. Uh, and that's kind of a picture of, of all of life. Um, we experience brokenness, and, and, and life in this world is the land of the shadow of death because we can see what's to come. It's more of the same. It's all generations before us, what's happened to them? They've all died, every generation. There's nobody exempt from that end of their, of their life. What's going to happen to us? Death, unless Jesus comes before we die. Uh, that's what's going to happen to us. And so we all live in the land of the shadow of death, the place where death casts its shadow, where we can see this ominous threat of an unavoidable future. We will die. Uh, and, and this is the, 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 a picture of uh, a spiritual reality, the brokenness in our lives that we experience in, in this world if we don't come to Christ, if we don't taste of his goodness and of his grace and lean upon him. It's a land that shows what's more to come in eternity, the place where death casts its shadow, being separated from God for all of eternity. What a terrible image. And yet, what a joyful passage, because it doesn't leave the people there. It says those who walked in darkness have seen what? A great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. That there is light that, that breaks in with an almighty power into this darkness that people live in. So there's a redeeming light. What is this light? It's that, uh, if you think about just the physical thing that's the illustration for the spiritual reality of light, in that Noah deep sea dive, you've got this, this light on the the, uh, the camera that goes down into the water, if that light's turned off, it's just blackness all around. But you flip on that switch, and all of a sudden there's light, and there's beautiful colors uh, all around. Uh, there's this, this uh, physical reality, then, of light that's being an illustration to help us understand what's going on spiritually, that God can turn on the light so we can see what's truth, what our circumstances are. Uh, it's God's revelation, then, is the spiritual reality of, of light. It's God's revelation. He tells us what's true. Uh, so that we can see. He gives us His truth. He shows us His holiness. It is true relief and salvation. It's not only uh, the lights coming on so that we can see the awfulness of the broken world, but we can see the reality of Jesus Christ that truly is deliverance, who is truly life in, in light. Chapter 8, uh, verse 17, God's gracious and redeeming presence uh, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. And so why, why is he waiting on the Lord when he's hiding his face? Well, he's looking for his redeeming uh, presence, his gracious presence. Uh, God's face once again shining on, on his people. Chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Where, where is this, um, this grace coming from? God's redeeming and gracious presence. You know, actually, I want to call to our attention another verse in chapter 8. Uh, I think it's verse... 
13 and 14. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will be a sanctuary, a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling both to, the, to both houses of Israel, and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That's the same verse that, uh, that the New Testament picks up on as pointing directly to the Lord Jesus Christ, that stone of uh, stumbling and rock of offense, but the very one who's the salvation of, of God's people. And then you have it spelled out for us in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the one who is life. This is the one who is light. The Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Once again, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen what? They've seen light. And how's the light described? It's a great light. They've seen a great light. Think about the greatness of this light. It is an irresistible and almighty light. It has to be. Because no earthly power and overcome the darkness, the spiritual darkness that we're in. Uh, another illustration besides darkness we've already looked at, that is the illustration in verses 4 and 5 of the Midianites, uh, an army described as vast as the sand upon the seashore. How many grains of sand are there, actually? Well, who knows? How, how could it ever be counted? That's like trying to count the stars. You just, there's no way to know. That's just a lot. That's all we know. Um, and, it's, uh, and when you think about it in terms of an army, it's beyond... Uh, any kind of imagine, imagining to think that that army could be overcome if it's truly, literally, as vast as the sand upon the seashore. It's overwhelming. It's an irresistible and almighty army in human terms. And yet, God overcomes it. And so that's, that's the picture here of, the, of our own darkness. It's a darkness that cannot be overcome by us. We must rely upon the living God to break in and to give us that light. And so it's a a great light because it's, it, it's an irresistible and almighty light. No earthly power can overcome our resistance. And it's a pure and wholesome and life-giving light, bringing wholeness to broken lives. In darkness, there's brokenness. With his light, there's wholeness and healing that we can even experience and taste in this life. And there's God's unmerited favor in his, his smile. How could God look upon people who have rejected him willfully? Uh, who live in such brokenness, who not only have brokenness in their own lives, but contribute to the brokenness of everybody around them. Uh, how could he look upon those people and smile? Is there any of us who doesn't contribute to the darkness of the people around us? Anybody here? All of us contribute to that, don't we? We all contribute to the brokenness of the very people that we love the most. We're, we're the reason for their tears. That's, that's how it works in life. The people that we're closest to are the ones that hurt us the most. We're all sinners. We see it in all of our relationships. And yet we have God's smile upon us. So how can God be good? It's just a simple Sunday school answer. Jesus. He takes our sin and he puts it on Jesus and he punishes Jesus for it and he gives us Jesus' righteousness so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, but he sees the Lord Jesus Christ and he loves his son and he sees us in his son and he delights in us as his son. And so we see the greatness of this light that we, we not only have forgiveness in God, innocence, 
but we have the whole righteousness of Christ and we have the smile of God. We have his song that he sings uh, about us, uh, his dance that he dances over us with such joy and delight in us. Well, in view of the, the terrible state of those in darkness and the fact that God is both life and light, what difference does that make in your, in your life? When, it, when you wake up tomorrow morning, the alarm goes off, it's time to start another day. How is your life to reflect this reality? Well, does your life reflect that you believe that God is life and light? Does your, your hunger for God's word and to spend time with God in his word and in prayer, does it reflect that you believe that he really is life and light? Uh, does the, the things you look at on your phone reflect that you think that God is life and light? Or is it really life and light found in the college football playoffs? Uh, is life and light to be found in Christmas shopping? Uh, these are things that's it's fine to, uh, to have these things be something that we uh, are concerned about and, and look into. We, we, we get gifts for one another. We enjoy different entertainment. But it's not life. It's not light. God himself is. And so this is, this is one of the things that first came to my mind. Is that I, I was challenged by this passage to think, uh, think of that question. Is, does my time in God's word show that I really believe that he alone is life and, and light? But then also think about, um, think about those who, who are in darkness. Uh, concern. Perhaps it's you yourself that you feel like you might be in darkness. Or perhaps it's a loved one who's in, in darkness. Um, for, if it's you there ought to be a sense of, uh, of desperation. That's the first step of light dawning upon you as you're desperate about your own spiritual condition. And you cry out to God in your helplessness and weakness. Uh, there should be a concern. Uh, not just for those who are outside of uh, fellowship with Christ, but even those who know the Lord. Uh, we also know sin in our life. And so there ought to be a sense of desperation about ourselves and our sin, a continual dependence upon uh, the Lord. But also to think in these terms... When we see those who are in darkness, as it's described in this passage, that was you. By your natural condition, that was you in darkness and without hope and without God in the world. And so there should be a sense of humility and gratitude that that God's had mercy on me. It's a sad thing when you see someone grasp the doctrines of grace, that it must be irresistible grace that saves someone. It's a sad thing to see someone turn that into a mark of pride, that, that they are a Calvinist, that they understand that God is sovereign in salvation. It, it's, it should be the very opposite thing. It should speak to us humility. Uh, and, and it just shows we don't get it if it, if it results in pride in our lives. Uh, and so there's this, there's this challenge then to, uh, to walk in humility. That was us. Uh, there should be humility and, and gratitude. He, we were helpless and he, he saved us. But then also we should feel for the sin of others. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, the Christian must feel for the sin of others. We are called upon to feel the burden of sin around us, so to feel it that we drop on our knees and weep and pray. The first time I went over this passage and studied it, I, I was really moved by that, that, uh, that, say, that quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. And, um, and I have to say that reviewing it recently, um, I don't feel that as much as, as an experience in my life. Uh, I don't really drop on my knees and weep for the sin of those around me. And I'm, I'm saying that not, not as a recommendation to you, but as, as a confession of my own sin. And, and I, I don't weep for the sin of people around me because it hurts. Uh, I, I'd rather not be in the house of grieving. I, I'd rather be in the place of 
rejoicing. I'd rather think about fun things. And it's, it's painful to think about the hurt that others live in and the brokenness of, of their lives. But that's what we're called to do as, as the church, to weep for the sin of those around us. Another question as we close here. As you look at chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, particularly verse 2, and this is not just a rhetorical question, who received the light? Who was it that received the light? It was the people in darkness. Was there anything about their darkness that gave hope for a potential of them being in light? No. There's nothing about that darkness that gives the hope of a future potential. As you think about loved ones who are walking in darkness, friends, neighbors, co-workers, and you think about this verse, who receives the light? Well, it's, it's people that are in darkness. There's nothing about the people perhaps that we know that gives us any hope that they're going to turn to the Lord, that they're about to, to turn the corner. But there's nothing about anyone who comes to know the Lord that gives that hope of that future prospect. It's darkness, and it's God's intervention. So there's hope. Anyone can be saved. And there should also be patience. Uh, it can be frustrating to interact and have close relationships with folks that don't know the Lord. But here is a call to patience. Here's a call to patience. What do you expect for someone that walks in darkness and lives in darkness? Of course they're going to mess up. Of course they're going to stumble. Of course they're going to walk in brokenness. They're in darkness. And we're asking God, the Almighty God, to intervene into that darkness and to bring his light into their circumstances. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Who are we that you should show such love to us to intervene into our dark lives and to bring the light of your word, the light of the Lord Jesus Christ into our lives? We thank you for your mercy and your your grace to us. And we ask, Lord, that you would cause us to, to walk day in and day out, delighting in your light, hungering for more of the same, more communion with you. We thank you for your grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.